It's time for the LaneCast with Montana's very own Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Agriculture Conversation right here on the LaneCast. Today's show is from Washington, D.C. Our guest is the Public Lands Council's Executive Director, Mr. Ethan Lane. Ethan will discuss the 50 years that the PLC has been a strong voice for public lands ranchers and an advocate for the multi-use of the nation's public lands. But first, we'd like to thank the National Cattlemen's Beef Association for the sponsorship of today's show. For more on the NCBA and its efforts to advocate on behalf of the nation's cattle producers, visit them at ncba.org. When we come back, we'll have our conversation with Ethan Lane from Washington, D.C. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on the Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and other podcast apps. Now, back to the show. Well, hello, everyone. Today finds us in our nation's capital at the headquarters of the Public Lands Council. And joining us here today is the executive director of the Public Lands Council, Ethan Lane. And things are pretty busy here in Washington, D.C., Ethan. But uh, how are things going? Uh, the farm bill shaping up. We have trade issues that, that many ranchers are concerned about. But how is uh, the Public Lands Council doing here in D.C.? You know, we're firing on all cylinders here in Washington. We're, we're in the home stretch of the 115th Congress. Uh, for those of us that, that are, are crazy enough to do this for a living, this is always sort of the, the most exciting time in a Congress and also the most frustrating because all the plans you've laid, all the conversations you've had on behalf of the industry for the last two years sort of come down to a make or break dash through this next few months. Uh, to the finish line. And, and as, as everybody knows, you know, once this Congress ends at the end of December, kind of turn the tables over and start over no matter where you are in the process, no matter where a bill's been introduced, everything has to start over again in the 116th Congress. So this is particularly heightened this year, obviously, because we have pretty contentious elections. Uh, nobody knows where we're going to end up with some of these congressional races and Senate races. Anyone who tells you they do is probably lying to you. Um, so it, it, it creates a really interesting landscape for PLC to try to advance its priorities. You know, we've had a good run over the last two years. Coming into this administration, we were very clear about where we wanted to be. We were very clear with the administration and with Congress about what we wanted to see done. We led through the door with the repeal of Planning 2.0. Um, we focused on monuments. We've seen a two million acre reduction in monuments. And then we turned our attention to some of those top level issues. ESA modernization, rewrite of the grazing regs, NEPA reform. Those are kind of those foundational issues that for Western ranchers that are operating with grazing permits, that live in the shadow of a large federal land ownership footprint, um, really dominate their day. And we talk about that a lot in DC when we're trying to help people understand the difference between a, a cattle producer maybe in the middle of the country and a, and a Western cattle producer or sheep producer. Um, uh, you know, it's the fact that, that they have all the same concerns that that Midwestern rancher does, plus this extra suite of issues. So for us, those have been foundational things we're trying to work on. Um, we're, we're pleased that we're making progress on all of those fronts. Um, we're excited that the White House and, and the, uh, the Council on Environmental Quality has taken up NEPA reform in a comprehensive way. We like that there is a comprehensive administrative rulemaking on ESA uh, uh, perking along. We have plan amendments coming out on, on sage grouse, which for some states has, has really been critical. Um, and we're talking about an ESA bill in the Senate. So. Across the, across the board on those issues, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're definitely, uh, we've bitten off enough to, to stay busy 
Um, and we'd like to try to get as much of that across the finish line before the end of the year as we can. And on top of that, the Public Lands Council is also celebrating its 50th year uh, starting back in 1968. Uh, let's share a little bit of that history, how sheep and cattle producers came together because they knew they needed a voice in Washington, D.C. on their behalf. You know, it's been cool over the last year as we've been planning the 50th anniversary meeting to go back through some of the old transcripts. And we have a wealth of history from the founding of PLC. We have the original memos that sort of outlined the case for why this needed to, to be a, an entity sort of devoted to federal land permit holders in the West. Um, we have the minutes from the original meetings. We have tapes of some of the meetings from uh, the late 70s and early 80s. And it has been so much fun. And you know, in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the midst of working on all these issues that are confronting us today, we've gone back and looked at meeting minutes from 25, 30, 40 years ago. And some of them read like they could have been last week. I mean, you know, some of these issues, these guys had the foresight to recognize as problematic back then. And it, I mean, some of the foundational things that, that formed the PLC, they said then we needed to have this organization so that we could be here today fighting the things that we're fighting. So it's, it's really neat to see that come full circle. It's, it's, it's an honor to be in the roles that we're in here 50 years after PLC's founding. Um, I, I, we'd like to think carrying forward that legacy and, and, and trying to accomplish what, what those folks sat in that room 50 years ago and, and set up. Um, that's, that's a, that's a, it's a good feeling. Um, it's exciting. It's, <laughs> it's daunting uh, in, at, at some points, but um, it puts it in some perspective that, you know, this is, this is an organization that, that is 50 years old. And, and when you look at the battles that we fought, the things that we've accomplished over that time span, um, um, it's, it's, it's cool to see. Well, I think it's very uh, interesting to note that PLC was formed before the Endangered Species Act mm -hmm. even came about. And just uh, when you look to the founders, uh, a Montanan, a New Mexico rancher, and so many others right. had the uh, foresight to come together and say, we're public lands ranchers, we need a voice, and actually kind of came together at the famous Old Abbott Grill right here in Washington, D.C., not yep. too far away from your office here. Yep, that's exactly right. And, and, and it, it really is interesting because those original folks from Montana and Wyoming and, and, and other places in the West had this conversation and said, we are about to witness a fundamental transition in the way federal land is managed in the West, and we better be ready for it. And they had that conversation and subsequent conversations, yeah, at Old Ebbett Grill just down the street and, and at some of these meetings and in Montana and, and in different places around the West over the, the, the several years that, that led to the formation of PLC um, and, and tracking that history and those, those key individuals and you know looking at the difference now in in how these issues play out in Arizona as compared to Montana and the priorities from one state to the next I can drive two hours in the West and meet with ranchers in two different places and they will have a totally different set of issues confronting them because their state is handling things differently because the the geography is different because the ecosystems are different because the species fights are different um, you know it, it really does show you how diverse our just our western ranching industry is um, and and it, you know it, it takes that sort of collaboration and respect for the different states and the way they're tackling these issues uh, with an eye towards the federal conversation uh, which is what we hope to try to accomplish around here now again the 50th meeting is coming up at the end of this month the 26th through the 29th in park city utah and we covered you know a a glimpse really of what plc does on behalf of its uh 
ranchers across uh, the West and the nation. But let's talk a little more about the Endangered Species Act. Of course, we've saw a great collaboration between agencies and ranchers and organizations like the PLC and state associations and livestock groups. Where, where are we at with sage grouse? It just seems that uh, we haven't heard much, but I know there's a lot going on behind the scenes. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. And, you know, we, we asked this administration when they came in to listen to the states. That was our that was our 30,000 foot pitch on sage grouse. The 2015 plans um, really sort of got 90% of the way there and then took a, took a hard left turn and, and left a lot of producers in the West and a lot of state uh, uh, land managers in the West really frustrated by, by the end result. Um, different states have approached that differently. I mean, I, I, you know, uh, states like Oregon, you have ranchers in Eastern Oregon who have been very clear about the fact that they need changes to those plans to operate. You have a governor on the other side of the Cascades that feels a little differently about that. Other states like Utah or Wyoming, um, you know, are a little bit more in sync on what they want out of the process. But what we've seen consistently throughout the West is the need for the state's role in the process to be respected. We asked the Department of Interior to do just that. That's what they've done in crafting these plan amendments, and it reflects in what you see in the draft plan amendments that are out now. Some states got a lot more movement. They, you know, some have seen that habitat objectives table and that stubble height requirement all but done away with. In other states, it sort of remains in the draft anyway, pretty similar to where it was. And you know, our, our national position on that has been that it's inappropriate to apply it in the way that it's applied in the 2015 uh, uh, plans, and, and we're seeing the results of that. Just in this fire season alone, Martin Fire in Nevada burned 400,000 acres, 250,000 plus of that was priority sage-grouse habitat. That's land that hadn't been grazed in two years. We're keeping on the pressure on this issue because we know we're right. Where you have grazing in a responsible way, where you have reduction of fuels in those areas, you save sage-grouse habitat, the species flourishes, and ranchers don't go out of business. So this is, not, this is not a complicated issue for us. I think you're not hearing a whole lot about it right now because we're in this phase where we've all commented and now it's up to the Department of Interior to kind of finish their work and get a final product out the door. Um, we hope they've heard our, our concerns. Um, we hope that they've heard our gratitude for the, the changes they've made thus far. Um, you know, we know some other groups have taken a different approach to this. We feel pretty confident that, that our, our take on this is representative of where most ranchers in the West are today. These plans don't work for them in their current form. These plans shouldn't be punishing ranchers um, for, for doing what they do. In fact, they should be rewarding ranchers for the stewardship they're providing, and we hope that's where we're going to end up. Now, also, a lot of uh, ranchers are concerned that the Trump administration has yet to put a nominee forward for the director of the Bureau of Land Management. What can you tell the ranchers uh, in the West about that position? You know, the, the nomination process has been uh, I, uh, one that's been frustrating in, in this administration. Um, this is a group that came in with a lot on their plate. They're ambitious. Uh, the president and his team uh, and his cabinet really wanted to tackle a lot, and I think in some instances they're doing exactly that. Um, you can't really sugarcoat it. The, the, the nomination of, of political appointees to those key roles has not been one of their bright spots, just as far as timing goes. Um, I think it's a, it's, it's a more complicated process than they maybe gave it credit for coming through the gate. Um, and, and we're hopeful that we'll still see a good BLM director nominee. But, it, you know, it, in reality, the agency is running pretty well in its current form. There's a, a, there's a good team in place. There are political appointees 
at the deputy assistant secretary level and at the assistant secretary level um, that are providing really solid leadership. Brian Steed is doing a fantastic job um, in his role as deputy director, acting with authority of the director at this point. Um, he really understands the issues. He's from the West. He's, he's worked in a Utah office. Um, so we feel pretty comfortable with the way BLM is operating. Obviously, not having a permanent director in place is always going to be problematic. But, um, you know, personally, I'm not lying awake at night worried too much about that because the folks that are there are doing a fantastic job. One thing I'd like to point out, Ethan, is just that your staff is from the West. Right. You don't see that a lot in Washington, D.C. An elected official in an appointed position, they're just going to hire staff. Mm -hmm. But it's a priority for you to have staff around you that understands and has grown up on the landscape in the West. It is. And, and you know, you never want to prejudge anybody in the hiring process, but I'd be lying if I said that wasn't pretty high up my list as well as our officers and our board. Um, you know, it's important that, that people who are representing Western ranchers understand where Western ranchers come from. And we are different in the West than the rest of the country. Um, you know, I mean, I'm from Arizona, you're from Montana, and, and as far apart as those two states are, you and I know there are a lot of things that we're going to see the same way just because we have that common Western bond that maybe aren't going to be the same for somebody from the Southeast or somebody from the Eastern Seaboard. That's important, and we need to make sure we're reflecting that. We do view ourselves as, a, as kind of a, a real voice for the West, for rural Western communities in Washington, D.C., because so often ranchers are the backbone of those small rural western communities. They are on the county boards of supervisors. They are in those key roles. They are the ones out there putting out fires on the ground when there aren't any other uh, services available to do that. So um, those things are inextricably linked for those western communities, so we, we take that pretty seriously. Now, just speaking of those western communities, uh, the impact the National Monuments had across the west in Montana, they're still being felt. <laughs> But how about the Bears Ears uh, National Monument and the Grand Staircase Escalante, which right. we saw reduced? But there's a lot of confusion out there because some people just believe that it's now not public land. Yeah. But it is. The messaging from some of these environmental groups and jacket manufacturers um, has been really unfortunate. You know, this issue is pretty cut and dry. This was federal land before it was designated as a monument. During the short time that it was designated as a monument, it was federal land. In the wake of uh, President Obama signing the executive order and reducing those national monuments, it remains federal land. What we're debating here is how that, man that land is managed and, and what category it's placed in. When you put it into this sort of squishy gray area national monument designation, you really throw a lot up in the air. You're taking it away from a, a normal multiple use environment. Um, and you're putting it into a kind of a free-for-all, jump-ball type situation where whoever can lobby the hardest or intimidate the most can sort of get what they want out of the process. What we've said from the beginning is you need to listen to the folks on the ground. You need to have a comment period. You need to have a review process in place. It's inappropriate to take a million or two million acres and simply change it into a new category by executive fiat without any review process. That's particularly onerous, as you know, for Western ranchers that go through such enormous hurdles to do basic things on their allotments, to do basic things on their ranches. To then see something like this, a fundamental shift in the way their community is managed, is really offensive. So the fact that this administration got that pretty quickly and took action to reduce um, was, was really welcome. Now, the next steps in that process are listening to that local input and making sure that the end result is something that respects those traditional multiple uses that, that need to continue to operate there, values the contribution they make to that 
management sphere in the in the in the area and also make sure that, that folks do have access that needed in recreational capacities hunting fishing you know people kind of get confused and 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 mistakenly think that that we take a position of either or and, and in fact nothing could be further from the truth all of those other multiple uses can operate in a ranching environment that's why we're such an important part of the process um, but you need to make sure you're listening to those uses and taking their input on the ground not from you know their representatives in Washington or San Francisco or, or you know Patagonia or whoever else. I would say that uh, Western ranchers are very pleased with a lot of the decisions and rollbacks in regulations that the Trump administration has been put into place but what happens in the case where Republicans lose leadership in the House if that does occur this fall how does that change your staff's uh, uh, work on the Hill? It, it fundamentally changes it. I, I mean there, you, you can't sugarcoat it. Um, if we see a shift in leadership in the House in particular, the, the, the leadership on the Democratic side of the aisle in the House Natural Resources Committee um, and at the national level both have radically different priorities than the current leadership. Um, you know, we have really worked hard, even in this environment, to find bipartisan solutions. Because quite frankly, that's the only way we're going to get to a, to a winning point on a lot of these issues. We don't have the luxury we don't have the size in these western communities or in rural areas in general to just dominate a discussion in Washington DC. We need to make sure that representatives from New Jersey and Florida and West Virginia and places like that understand our issues in the west and are and are giving us the support we need and staying out of the way quite frankly when it's none of their business what's what's happening in these areas. Um, if we see that shift, it's going to be a fundamentally different situation for us. You know, a lot of our work right now is, is focused on making sure we lock in as much progress as we can and making sure that the things that we get locked into place aren't so far to one extreme or the other that they become sort of a target in the next administration. Because we do need to be looking down the road. We want to hope for the best. We want to support those candidates that we think are going to make their way back to Washington, D.C. And, and make good decisions. But we also need to plan for what tomorrow might look like. And that's certainly kind of something we've had an eye towards for the last year and a half or so. Now, of course, uh, you represent ranchers, sheep and cattle producers. How many meetings do you have a year, yourself, your staff, up on the hill or with agency officials? I have, I, I, I mean, I'd have to, it'd take me a while to count, but we're up there almost every day. I mean, I've, I've been up there today already. I'll be back in the next hour or two. Um, we ping pong back and forth all day. And, you know, some of that is planned. You know, you're managing 435 members of Congress, 100 senators, um, uh, the agencies, and at and, and any one time, that means different things. And you know, I mean, I started my career in, in real estate and ranch real estate and buying and selling property in Arizona. And you know, you kind of get a feel for when a deal's happening and when something is, is coming together. It's really no different here. You know, you can, you can lay the foundation to be prepared to take advantage when the situation presents itself, but it's, it's making sure you can spring into action. And, and there are days when you know, what was a quiet Thursday afternoon, all of a sudden you're grabbing your coat and heading to Capitol Hill because there's an opportunity. Um, that's how we spend a lot of our time around here. And because we're building those relationships every day, because we have those, those first name basis back and forth, both with elected members and their staff, um, as well as the agencies, they think to call us, they're keeping us in the loop, we're checking in with them. So, you know, we like to think that we've got a pretty good finger on the pulse of what's going on. So we know where that attention is best applied at any one time. But it's I mean, it's, it's a three-ring circus around here most of the time. Again, the 50th meeting coming up uh, September 26th through the 29th in Park City, Utah. 
There's uh, going to be a lot of discussions about the items we just discussed, but there's also opportunities to bring the family down and also more educational uh, 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 venues and uh, informational sessions. One of those, Ag Risk Advisors, is a great supporter of the 50th meeting. What will they be providing uh, attendees? You know they'll be they'll be spending some time with our with our attendees. Obviously, they Aaron Tatterstall and Jim Van and the and the team there has been a great supporter of of the Public Lands Council and. We kind of think of them as a trusted advisor on a lot of those issues. You know, it's good to have somebody that's operating in that world that can that can keep us apprised. You know, as particularly as the farm bill is, is rolling out, we have some some issues there with different in, insurance products and 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 uh, coverage for ranchers. That you know, you need that that hand in that end of the industry that can kind of tell you, yeah, this is this is looking good. This is concerning us, and so uh, we we really are looking forward to them coming to Park City and and helping our guys understand where that part of the industry is going, what's available to them, where there might be some opportunities that, that they're not taking advantage of now, where there might be some things changing in the current farm bill. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to that. Obviously, there are a lot of moving parts at the moment. So um, it'll, be, uh, it'll be a great opportunity and a very timely opportunity here from those guys. Also, it's a great venue to bring the family down to with the resort there, the hiking, the uh, taking in the Olympic uh, facilities right there in Park City. Uh, what, what would you tell a, a producer that lives in the West that uh, has maybe wrapped up their uh, late summer, early fall activities, why, why they should come and participate? You know, you watch this stuff on TV. If you get RFD, which most of us do, you're watching Cattleman to Cattleman and, and the Western issues pop up on there from time to time. You're listening to TV's Lane Nordland from, from time to time and watching those broadcasts. And, you know, I mean, the farm broadcasting world in general provides so much content on a normal basis. Um, it's something that people, I think, outside this end of the world don't really understand. But how often do you get a chance to really come and be a part of those conversations unfolding? It's one thing to hear it. It's another to be there in the room and to offer your opinion. And a lot of times, um, you know, I, I think a lot of our producers find a lot of reasons to not leave the, leave the ranch, and I certainly understand that. But, you know, come and, and, and engage. It's a great opportunity to, to meet producers from around the country. It's a great opportunity to hear how they're doing it in a different part of the West, to hear how these, these things might have been solved in other areas, to hear maybe the worst case scenario of, of some problem you have in your backyard somewhere else. But to do it amongst people that see the world the same way you do and, and the camaraderie. Um, you know, what I've seen over the last couple of years as executive director at PLC is the lifelong friendships and relationships that are formed by the, 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 the leadership and the participants in PLC across the West. There's really nothing else like it. So the opportunity to see that in its 50th year to see a lot of our past presidents come back. Um, we're gonna be spending a lot of time on the history. We're gonna have some fun stuff planned for the course of the, of the week. Um, what a neat opportunity to, to see all of that, to expose your kids to it, um, you know, because that's one of the things we've been stressing a lot this year is it's great that you show up, it's great that you participate, bring your kids, because they need to understand what you're doing. They need to understand why it's important for them to engage in the next generation um, so that we have this kind of representation moving forward. And also, it's the 50th year, and it's a way to look towards the next 50 years of advocacy for uh, Western public lands ranchers. And you're also, uh, you've com uh, created a commemorative print yeah. that individuals can take home that are attending the convention. It's actually a Montana artist that grew up on a ranch, and it really showcases public lands ranching and the sheep and cattle producers that right. are a part of that history. It, it does. And, you know, I mean, I, I've been a Western art lover my whole life. My family has, has always been interested in Western art. And so I thought this was kind of a cool way to commemorate the 50th. Um, Allie Nelson on our staff is from Montana. She had a relationship with this artist and kind of got the ball rolling on this. It has made it 
made it a reality. And the result, I think, is really exciting. We have some of the prints here in the office. Um, they came in last week, and they just look great. Um, so to have uh, Steve's going to be there. Steve Wiestead, the artist, is going to be there um, in, in Park City with us to talk a little bit about the, the picture. We're going to have the original that we're going to uh, sell during the banquet on Friday night. Um, the first 200 attendees are going to go home with a signed print. Um, we might have even dropped a few off to see if we could get the secretary to sign a few and uh, get a couple commemorative versions floating around. And, and um, it's, it's exciting. It's not something we've done before. Um, and it is going to be a really lasting uh, piece of the meeting that people are going to be able to take home with them. And also, ranchers love to wear belt buckles as well. And the commemorative buckle set, because the 50th year, it takes 50 years to get there. And it's going to be a long time before the 75th or the right. 100th comes around. But this is also a way to really showcase and, and show off the Public Lands Council as well. So we have really had a lot of success with the, with the 50th anniversary belt buckles. This was something that our leadership was, was, was adamant about right up front. we got to have belt buckles for the 50th. And the finished product is really, really nicely done. Um, it's a great looking buckle in two different sizes, $150, whether you get the big one or the small one, which is a smoking deal. I mean, you have to spend way more than that to win one in the rope and pin or anywhere else. Um, and and uh, I, both sizes have, have really been flying off the shelves. We have a few left. Um, so I encourage people to, to jump on now if they want one because we're not gonna make these past, past this, this meeting. I mean, it's gonna be, you know, let's we're doing the, the, the limited edition run and then they're, then they're done. So um, the people who have jumped on early and have theirs are wearing them around. Um, I've, I've been seeing them everywhere this summer. Um, it's been cool to see. So I, I, if, if, if that's something somebody wants, I would encourage acting now because we're going to be out pretty quick. At the end of the day, Ethan, it's um, been a very successful 50 years for the Public Lands Council. What would you like to uh, just share with the public lands ranchers out there about the strength of the Public Lands Council and its rich heritage because of those public lands ranchers that come together every year, every day to advocate for their industry? You know, I think ranchers, especially Western ranchers, have a tendency to feel like they're a little bit on their own sometimes because, I mean, partially by choice, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of the lifestyle you choose and, 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 and we all love that, that feeling of, of, of being master of your own environment. But PLC is a great opportunity to understand what a strong presence we have as a united industry. And it has taken every bit of 50 years to build that. But just this morning up on Capitol Hill um, is a really good example of just how influential the Public Lands Council has become in the national conversation. Decisions in, in the resource arena do not get made in Washington, D.C. in 2018 unless they go past the Public Lands Council. And that is a really, really humbling feeling. And that's something that generations of ranchers and leadership and staff have worked hard to accomplish. Um, we're sort of enjoying the benefits of that today. And it makes Tanner and, and my job as the lobbyist for this organization, you know, a little bit easier. But um, it's something that's, that's hard to really understand unless you're participating in a part of this. And that's why we encourage people to come and, and, and be a part of the Public Lands Council so they can see exactly what we're accomplishing and, and how much of a voice we have. Um, so I, I hope people take advantage of that and take us up on it um, because it's something we're pretty proud of and, and we want to make sure people understand it. Well, Ethan, thank you for taking a few minutes to really talk about the, the role the Public Lands Council plays because I know you have to get up to the hill here. Uh, your staff's knocking on the door. But friends, I would encourage you to attend the 50th annual meeting of the Public Lands Council, the 26th through the 29th in Park City, Utah. For more information on the event and 
all around history of the PLC. You can visit them online at the publiclandscouncil.org. Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.